One of the things that strikes you probably more than anything else is what happy and emotionally fulfilled lives they live. So even adult wolves love to play. They're very attached to their companions and their mates and their pups. Um, They have uh, very deep emotional connections to each other. So when I talk to people about wolves, even if they've never seen any in their life, it's very easy for them to connect with my stories about wolves because they relate so well to their experiences as human beings. Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast. I'm Viveka Morris. And I'm Jennifer Skeen. When Yellowstone became the first national park in 1872, gray wolves, which had roamed and shaped North America's landscape for millions of years, were being massacred nationwide in a government-led extermination campaign. The eradication of these predators, who were cast as livestock-threatening villains, began soon after the pilgrims landed in Plymouth Bay. The colonists set bounties on wolves, and the war escalated in the decades that followed. As our guest once documented, wolves and their pups were shot, trapped, hunted with dogs, poisoned, dragged from their dens, baited with fish hooks, set on fire, and intentionally infected with mange. One community even paved a road with wolf carcasses. In Yellowstone, the job was completed in 1926, when the last two pups in the park were killed. The loss, brutality, and profound ecological consequences of this atrocity slowly began to sink in. We had made a terrible mistake. Seventy years after the last Yellowstone wolves were killed, the U.S. government took unprecedented measures to reclaim what we had destroyed. In 1995 and 1996, 31 wolves from seven different packs were brought to the park from Canada and released in a grand experiment that would become the most successful wildlife reintroduction effort in history. Within years, around 100 wolves in 10 packs were thriving across the 2.2 million acre park and the ecosystem was rebounding spectacularly. The roughly 100 wolves that live in the park today, which awe, inspire, and fascinate millions of visitors each year, are their descendants. Our guest, the internationally renowned wolf expert Rick McIntyre, has dedicated his life to those wolves. As a ranger naturalist, he spent more than 40 years watching wolves in America's national parks. For the past 26 of those years, he's observed the wolves in Yellowstone nearly every single day accumulating more than 100,000 sightings, more than any other person in human history. What Rick saw unfolding through his telescope is awe-inspiring. Epic adventures of wolf family dynasties. He watched wolves perform acts of bravery and kindness, suffer crippling injuries, conquer enemies and then treat them with benevolence, wage war over territories, form lifelong partnerships with touching loyalty, and play exuberant games of King of the Castle. His work leaves no doubt that wolves are individuals with unique personalities, emotions, and complex relationships like our own. His stories have shown millions of people that these still-persecuted animals deserve our respect and need our empathy. Since retiring from the Park Service in 2018, Rick has published a magnificent series of biographies of some of Yellowstone's most noteworthy wolves. These include The Rise of Wolf 8, The Reign of Wolf 21, and his latest book, The Redemption of Wolf 302. As the writer Nate Blaskley aptly put it, 
With his third installment of Rick McIntyre's magnum opus, the scope and ambition of the project becomes clear. Nothing less than a grand serialization of the first 20 years of Wolves in Yellowstone, a kind of lupine great expectations. These stories are especially important right now. Wolves desperately need federal protection from extreme and horrifically cruel wolf-killing laws recently passed in Montana and Idaho. These laws could destroy wolf populations, undoing decades of progress. As the famous wolf biologist Doug Smith once put it, the wolves need Rick. Rick McIntyre, welcome. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I feel this is a, an honor to be associated with Yale University. So thank you very much for having me on your show. Rick, bef before you moved out west, you grew up in Massachusetts. It was mm -hmm. more than a century after humans had driven the last gray wolves in that state extinct. But you ended up dedicating your life to these animals. Yes. Uh -huh. Why wolves and how, how did you get there? Well, it was really all by accident. Uh, yes, I did grow up in a rural part of eastern Massachusetts. So back then, I was a, a free-ranging kid. I would walk out in the woods every day, fish, catch turtles, just did everything that a kid would do back in the 1950s. And then I read Thoreau's Walden. That uh, changed my life. And I decided that the closest thing to what Thoreau did would be to study forestry at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. So I got my degree. But it turned out that after a while, I realized that I had been trained to do clear cuts. And I didn't really want to spend my life cutting down trees. So I accidentally was made by the U.S. Forest Service on the White Mountain National Forest, where I was working in the summers in college. They forced me to do the naturalist programs in the big campground. And that really changed my life. I, I realized that uh, that was something I liked much more than cutting down trees and planting clear cuts. So by that time, I had some firefighting experience. I switched over to the National Park Service as a firefighter at Sequoia National Park. And then that parlayed me into a situation where I was able next year to go up to Alaska to work in what then was Mount McKinley National Park is now Denali National Park. And that's when I first began to encounter wild wolves. And then you came to Yellowstone right before uh, on the cusp of the first uh, wolf reintroduction in 1995, and you, you came in 1994. Yes. Uh -huh. what, what were some of the sentiments around the, the introduction of those wolves? And what was it like to be there on the cusp of reclaiming the ecosystem to the way it was before? Well, first of all, I, I feel very, very fortunate in hindsight that I started in 94, the year before the reintroduction. I had been to Yellowstone many times as a visitor, so I had some experience, but to actually work there the year before the walls arrived was very, very important to me um, to be able to see that contrast. I think looking back at that period, we very luckily hit a sweet spot in the politics in that the stars aligned and politicians from both parties, Republicans and Democrats, realized that one way or the other, wolves were probably going to come back to the northern Rocky Mountain states. So to be blunt, conservative Republicans that normally probably would have been against a government program to bring them back, 
realized that if they participated in crafting a reintroduction plan based on some of the details in the Endangered Species Act, it could be something that would give them a little bit more control how the program was done. There would be a lot of details that we could get into uh, in that regard, but we, we just happened to hit that point in politics where we were able to get an agreement between politicians that under almost any other type of situation never would have agreed on anything. So perhaps a way to say that is the politicians on both sides of the issue felt that they had worked out a compromise where they both felt they got the best deal possible from their perspective, which resulted in the wolves being brought back under a special component of the Endangered Species Act. It's a little bit of an obscure portion of it, but I believe the term is a non-essential experimental population. And that gave the wildlife managers at the time, the, the federal biologist, more latitude in managing the wolf population. To be specific, that meant that, let's say, if some wolves were to leave the park and kill livestock, then there were a lot of options on dealing with those wolves. It would involve giving them perhaps a second chance, but if they continued to be a problem, then they could actually be shot and removed from the population. Whereas if it had been under the full-fledged Endangered Species Act, that would be way more difficult. So we could go into more detail, but uh, perhaps that's a, enough of an introduction to that issue. In his book, American Wolf, um, Nate Blakesley makes the point, which your comments reminded me of how at this time when the wolves are being introduced, the federal government had one agency that was in charge of this incredible operation of capturing the wolves mm -hmm. in Canada, packs mm -hmm. that knew each other and transporting mm -hmm. them and reintroducing them to the park. And a second agency that was leasing the land all around the park, the public yes. land to, <laughs> um, to livestock. Yeah. And then a third agency <laughs> that was paying under, which most people don't realize in the Endangered Species Act, that this like special deal that had been created, paying to then shoot these wolves <laughs> that were being introduced by the first agency when they reached the livestock. Yeah. And it's, it's quite uh, an extraordinary setup. Yeah. Um, and we'll get more into that too, but but tell us, these wolves are brought in and they were first brought to Penn, yes, which uh -huh. is where I believe you first first saw them. What happened from there and what were some of your mm -hmm. early experiences getting to know these wolves in depth? Well, it's an epic, epic story. And uh, I feel so privileged to have a, a, some involvement in those early days. So the a way to perhaps simplify the basics of the story is in January of 95, American biologists went up to Alberta and they made an arrangement with the local trappers to pay them way more money for them to hand over a live wolf that they had trapped as opposed to killing the wolf and selling the pelt for its value of fur. So they agreed to take that deal. We paid them the money. And the end result of that is we received 14 wild Canadian wolves. We brought them down to Yellowstone. They comprised three different wolf packs. Each of the three packs was placed in an acclimation pen for two months to get used to Yellowstone. The reason for that is like dogs, wolves have a homing instinct. So if you were to drive wolves 700 miles from their home and then release them, 
they would try to go back home to the north, just like if you had a dog that had lived with you for many years, if it was kidnapped and escaped, it would may well be able to find its way home. So we needed to have a way to get the wolves to stay long enough so that they thought of Yellowstone as their new home. They were kept in the pens for about eight or nine weeks, fed a couple of times a week with roadkill deer, elk, and bison. And then the most critical moment of the whole program was when they were released in March of 95. Now, the main pack that I studied that first year was the Crystal Creek pack. Wolf 8 was one of the pups in that family. And they were a good example of what happened. They left the pen and they very slowly explored the nearby area within just a mile or two of the pen, just to kind of get used to it. They were a little bit cautious about this new world, but they began to see all the elk in their new territory. They were professional elk hunters, so they were very happy to be in this new territory, and um, it worked for them perfectly. They decided to stay in what for them was a much higher quality place to support their family. They didn't fully realize it yet, but they had the full protection of the government while they were inside Yellowstone, so there was no one shooting at them or setting out traps. So that worked perfectly for them. And then that allowed me to continue to study the life story of Wolf 8, and then to eventually be able to tell that biography in my first book. And yeah, I mean, his Wolf Wolf Eight story is terrific, and I I do want to get to Wolf Three Hundred Two, who's featured in your most recent book, who is an absolutely fascinating character. Sort of a, a you describe him as a, mm-hmm. as a bit of a renegade, yes. But almost to you know to set him up and and how unique Wolf Three Hundred Two is. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell the story first of of Wolf Eight and and then um, Wolf Twenty One, who were much more sort of noble and heroic in the more traditional sense. Sure. So even though uh, prior to Yellowstone, I had been around wolves in other areas, Denali National Park, and then also Glacier National Park, you just don't learn about their individual lives the way that I've had the opportunity to do in Yellowstone. So after the wolves were released in the spring of 1995, I would go out every day. And it turned out that that pack with number eight, the Crystal Creek pack, was very, very visible that spring and early summer. And um, I knew that eight had been the runt of the litter. He was the smallest of four brothers. And in the pen during the two months that they were there, the rangers that were guarding the pen had told me that he had been relentlessly bullied and picked on by his bigger brothers. So he had a really hard time in the pen. And after the family was released, I could see and document that his life had gotten infinitely better for him. In a way, when that family was in the pen, it would almost be like people in prison, where the aggression, the violence, the bullying is way more intense than it would be out in a more natural situation. So if nothing else, his bigger brothers had plenty of new things to do and explore after they were released. And so for the most part, that made life uh, for number eight uh, much, much better. So I began to see the families settle into the area, saw them go out and hunt, saw the parents take care of their four sons or the four sons learn how to 
chase elk on their own. They would play together. They would confront grizzly bears. So it would be much like if you were an anthropologist studying a, a tribe in the Amazon and you were just watching a, a typical family in that culture raise their their four sons. Uh, it is very much the same thing. Both Wolf 8 and then the subject of your second book in this series, Wolf 21, who is an adopted son of, of Wolf 8's, were very heroic and noble. You call Wolf 21 at one point a, a perfect wolf. Just these were warriors of just the highest caliber with a real sense of duty and responsibility and tremendous compassion. You write in the book, and particularly I think this comes across in Wolf 21's story, that compassion you've come to see over time is the most important quality of leadership in a wolf. Yes. Uh, what do you mean by that? And what did that look like manifested by Wolf 21? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, very good question. Um, I, I think to answer it, let me take a step back or two for our, our viewers and listeners to um, know a little bit about how um, 21 became connected to Wolf 8. So when eight was about a year and a half old, and that would be the equivalent for a, a human um, son, maybe to be about 16, 17 years old, something like that. He found that his life was a lot easier if he was by himself most of the time. So um, technically he was a member of his family, but he was uh, partly a lone wolf as well. 21's father was illegally shot and killed just slightly outside the park, the very day that his mother, Wolf Nine, had given birth to a total of eight pups. So the mother wolf was in a desperate situation. She had no help, a new mother. It was very unlikely that her litter would survive. So the park biologists intervened. They captured the mother wolf and the pups and they put them back in the, one of the acclimation pens the plan was to keep them there and to feed them for six months. And then when they were released, those six months old pups would at least have a chance of survival with only one adult, the mother wolf in the pack to care for them. So with that background, that brings us back to eight story. Uh, by great good luck, on the very day that those pups were being released, eight happened to walk into that very part of Yellowstone. We think he had heard the pups howling. So he wanted to investigate what was going on. We think he came around a corner in a, in a creek, looked in a meadow and saw something that he had never seen before in his life. And that was wolves that were actually smaller than he was. He saw some of number nine's pups. And instantly an instinct kicked into him of trying to help out. So he ran over to the pups, he befriended them, shared some food with them, began to play with them. The mother wolf was watching from a distance. She was desperate. Number eight, because of his youth and, and small size was not an ideal candidate to be the new alpha male, but he was there, he was available, and he had already made friends with some of her pups. So he was in, he was a, a brand new alpha male, something that we never would have expected on the runt of the litter. And that meant that now he was the adopted father of eight pups. He was only the equivalent of a teenager in human years, but he had all this responsibility and he lived up to that responsibility. He became one of our greatest alpha males, one of our greatest leaders, one of our greatest father walls. 
And so his job for the, the, the next um, few months was to begin the training and apprenticeship of those young walls. And then the following spring, he had biological sons and daughters of, of his own. And yes, one of those adopted sons uh, turned out to be our greatest wolf, the undefeated, undisputed heavyweight champion of Yellowstone. And that was <laughs> that was Wolf 21. So 21 learned everything that he needed to know how to be a father wolf, an adult male wolf, and especially an alpha male wolf by being an apprentice of little number eight. It's almost the equivalent of the story of Superman in the sense that he landed in a rocket ship in a Kansas farm and the little boy that was destined to be Superman was uh, trained how to be an adult man and a hero by a, just a, an average Kansas father. It's, it's such an incredible story and just a, a snapshot of the high drama that you capture in your books. I mean, any of these in of themselves could be full-length feature film with compelling characters just the way we see in, in other movies. Mm -hmm. And turning to 21, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's hard to talk about Wolf 21 without also talking about Wolf 42. Theirs is really one of the, the great love stories, speaking of high drama. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you've called it an epic love story for the, the ages. Mm -hmm. What was their relationship like? Well, 21 spent longer than normal apprenticing under his parents, and particularly Wolf 8. He really idolized Wolf 8. And so when he was two and a half years old, and that would be equivalent in, um, for a human man maybe to leave home and set out on his own, maybe when he'd be 25, 27 years old, something like that. So relatively old for a, a wolf. And um, because wolves don't breed with relatives, the only females that 21 knew growing up would have been his mother and his own sister. So nothing was going to happen there. So probably he just had an instinct building up with him that it was time to leave and find a mate. And so when he left home, he did something that we thought was a gigantic mistake. He went east into the territory of the Druid Peak Pack. And at that time, the Druid wolves were considered the most violent and the most aggressive wolves in the park. And they were led by an alpha male known as Wolf 38. And 38 had already killed another alpha male. And he was really a, a terrifying, very aggressive animal. And 21 just casually just strolled into the middle of that territory, despite knowing that 38 lived there. However, 21 had this ability to uh, judge his timing. And there was no way that he could have known this. But it turned out that 38 had just been illegally shot and killed outside the park, just like 21's father had. So on the day that 21 arrived in Lamar Valley, the home of the Druid Wolves, the adult females in the family had just realized that they needed a new alpha male to join their family. And it's almost like a, a movie. They turned around and here comes this most impressive male wolf that's ever lived on the planet, number 21. And one of the, the local filmmakers actually was on the scene and, and filmed that meeting. And it's just an amazing thing to witness. 
So there were five pups in the family and they took one look at this new guy and they ran over and they wanted to make friends with him. So it was exactly the same situation as when number eight walked into the Rose Creek family and first met the pups and befriended them. So 21 did the same thing with the, the Druid pups. And then the two adult female sisters, number 40 and 42, they ran over and met him as well. They were very <laughs> happy to see this big guy come into their valley. <laughs> and when you really pay attention to the video, you see that when 21 meets the, the gray sister, number 40, yeah, there, he seems to be happy to, to meet her. But boy, when her sister comes over 42, I, I can't quite say that it's love at first sight, but it, it was a world of difference that they just instantly had something going on between them. And uh, she would jump on his back. He would wag his tail. She would playfully nip him. He would gently place his paw on her shoulder, his chin over her back. And there was something going on between them. Um, so, and uh, that relationship lasted for the, the rest of their life. Well, and, and one of the revelations that you, partly from, from viewing their relationship, but also, of course, from, from others, is that the alpha is actually a female wolf and, and not a, a male, as is mm -hmm. typically assumed and was long assumed before your research. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it did take a while for Wolf 21 and Wolf 42 to have to, you know, sort of find their happily ever after. What was the road like for them leading up to that? Mm-hmm. Well, that's an especially a fascinating story, and and, and um, I, I found that women <laughs> are really interested, especially women have sisters that were difficult uh, when uh, they were growing up. So yes, there were two adult sisters, and they did not get along, 40 and 42. And um, 40 had a personality that was extremely violent and aggressive. Uh, examples of that would be that she had already driven her own mother out of the family so that she could be the alpha female. There was a third sister, and she turned on that sister and attacked her. And after she got rid of the mother and the third sister, then she turned on the remaining sister, 42, and relentlessly bullied and attacked her, trying to drive her out of the family as well, so that she would be the only adult female but 42 would just not leave. She took the abuse. She just put up with it as best she could. And that was probably because of what we could see going on between her and 21. So yes, we've learned that the true leader of the pack is not at all the alpha male. He just works for the leader of the pack and that's always the alpha female. So in this case, it made life very, very difficult, very complicated for 21 because he had this very benign cooperative personality. He wanted everyone to get along, but it was very stressful for him with 42 being in charge. And as big as strong as 21 was, he, he could have killed 42 in two seconds if he wanted to, and perhaps he did want to, but he had this inhibition against using any violence or aggression or force against a female. And so he just could not do that. It was like he was programmed that that was not an option for him. 
So he was really stymied in trying to figure out how to deal with this. And that meant that he had to rely on 42 to come up with a solution to the 40 problem. And I could gradually see the wheels turning in 42's personality and behavior. And a, a way to explain that is, as quickly as I can, she started to make alliances with the younger females in the pack. She would protect them. She would do favors for them, help them when they had pups. And uh, they certainly had reason to dislike the alpha female. And to condense a lot of details, uh, uh, a lot of history, in the year 2000, both 40 and 42 had pups. The previous two years, to give you an idea of how aggressive 40 was, she had killed her sister's pups twice. The third year when she attempted to do that, we were able to determine that 42 had her allies on her side. And it appeared when 40 made her move to kill her sister's pups for a third time, the two sisters finally had it out. They were fighting. In a straight-out fight, 42 could not prevail against her sister. She did not have that ultra-violent personality. But when we found 40, she was close to death. She died of multiple wolf bites, way more than could have been inflicted by just one opponent. So that was proof that 42's alliance with the younger females in the pack had worked to benefit her. In other words, instead of it one sister against another, it was probably maybe three females against the alpha female. They beat her up, they defended her, they protected the pups, they let her go, and then she died of her injuries. And the most um, amazing part of the story is even what happened after that is 42 then adopted and raised her sister's pups, despite the bad history, despite her sister killing 42's pups two years in a row, 42's compassionate personality prevailed. She took mercy in those pups. So she raised her sister's pups alongside her own pups that year. You've written that some wolves like Wolf 8 and Wolf 21 and Wolf 42 is really featured in Wolf 21's book as well. But not all wolves have these outsized lives that are worthy of entire books, just like, just like with people. And the wolf who's featured in your third book, Wolf 302, looked for a while to be perhaps one of the wolves that might not be part of the pantheon of great wolves uh, and part of this uh, wonderful series that you're writing, but that changed over time. How was Wolf 302 related to the wolves that you've told us about so far? And, and what was he like as a young wolf? Mm -hmm. Yes, it, it, the story of 302 is so instructive because um, it, it really, really proves the point that every wolf is different, just like every person is different. We all have our strengths and, and weaknesses, our quirks, uh, et cetera. And um, 302 was especially well known for his um, faults and failures in life. <laughs> he was a real character in the sense of a, in, a, in a negative way. But he had one thing going for him. He was extremely good looking. So um, the way he connects with uh, the characters in our story is that his father was one of eight's brothers. 
and his mother was one of 21's sisters. So 302 was 21's nephew. And um, 302 was several years younger than 21. So um, he showed up on the scene in 21's territory in early 2003, just as the mating season, the February mating season was about to start. 21 at that time was the father of a lot of daughters, the equivalent of, let's say, teenage daughters. And um, 302 strolled on the scene. And for a wolf biologist, this does not sound very sympathetic to to say, but I I really need to emphasize that uh, even for people, when they took a look at, at 302, everyone agreed that he was just drop dead gorgeous. And so 21's daughters just flocked to him. He was the, the, the rock star that uh, had come into the valley. And they were just all over him. They, they couldn't get enough of him. And it was obvious what his intent was with the mating season about to start, that um, his intent was to probably get them all pregnant. Now, normally, a young male wolf's plan in life is to do what 21 did, leave home, find one or two females, settle down with them, and then live the rest of their lives with them and raise the pups year after year. But 302 had a a different life plan. I guess to be blunt, you could say that his plan was to get as many females as pregnant as he could, and then go off and do his own thing in the next mating season, do that over and over again, as opposed to sticking with those females and helping them raise their pups. So he got a lot of 21's daughters pregnant. 21 seemed to be the only wolf in his family that correctly had analyzed what 302's intent was. So it's a classic story of a father wolf thinking that his daughter's boyfriend was no good. So 21 repeatedly would try to drive 302 out of the territory. 302 never wanted to stand his ground and fight, so we would always run away from 21. 21 caught 302 a number of times, pinned him, beat him up, was biting him. But I think I mentioned that 21 had this policy of never killing a defeated opponent, kind of like Superman or Batman. So he would always reluctantly get 302 go, After a while, 302 realized that that was going to be the pattern, so he stuck around even longer. And when the mating season was finally over, we had one day where 302 was traveling with some of his pregnant girlfriends, 21's daughters, a rival pack charged down at them, and 302 ran away to save himself and essentially abandoned the pregnant females to their fate. Luckily, they survived, but no thanks to 302. So 21's daughters realized the lack of commitment of their boyfriend. So they came home to the territory of 21 and 42, had their pups there, meaning that year, and actually the next few years as well, 21 had the responsibility of not only raising his own pups, but also a lot of pups that had been born to the boyfriend. 
So yeah, he was he was definitely a bit of a, a, a rapscallion, to say the least. How did he change as he got older? Because ultimately, this is a story of redemption, as the title suggests, uh, and one where he does really grow into a leadership role. Yes. Uh-huh. So um, yes, as the story continued, we'll jump ahead to 2004. We don't have time to go into um, the events that happened toward the end of 21's life, but let's just say that um, his longtime companion, after being together for two-thirds of their lives, she died, and 21 was never the same after he lost her. He deteriorated very, very rapidly during the following months. He was born with a jet black coat of fur. Um, toward the end of his life, he turned uh, totally gray. And at a certain point, he seemed to just kind of give up on living life. You know, much like oftentimes you, you'll read in the news of a couple that have been happily married for 50 or 60 years. One of them dies and the, the surviving spouse dies of unknown causes within a day or two. So 21 and 42 had that type of relationship. And um, when he was about nine years old, which is twice as old as an average Yellowstone wolf, 21 just walked away from his family and died in the wilderness. He, it was like he just didn't have a reason to go on living after he lost 42. So a very, very emotional story at the end of his life. So that paved the way for 302 to come back to Lamar Valley. And for a time, he actually was the new alpha male of the Druid Peak Pack. He arrived with a nephew, a younger male, 480. And to condense a, a lot of details that we probably don't need to get into, 302 totally failed to be an alpha male. He ran away when he needed to fight to protect his family. He pretty much it failed in all his responsibilities. So the younger male, 480, had to intercede, had to hold an intervention. And so he had a peaceful transfer of power from 302 to himself. And I think 302 actually preferred that he didn't have that responsibility anymore. That meant that during the coming Mady seasons, he could just take off whenever he wanted and visit girlfriends in other territories. And then whenever he felt like it, he would come back home and he could rely on his nephew to take care of everything in the territory and, and the family. So that allowed 302 to continue to live a, a life of essentially total irresponsibility. Ultimately, 302 grows into the role of becoming a quite a noble wolf. And this wolf that you know you observe stealing food from young pups when he was a teenage wolf ultimately ends up sacrificing himself to save his family at the end of his life. What was the end of Wolf 302's life like and, and how did he die? Sure. It's just a, an amazing and an, um, an individual's life story. So we never thought that 302 would change, that for his, the rest of his life, he would um, be this irresponsible, undependable, untrustworthy character, that he was just destined to stay that way forever. But uh, against all odds, against all expectations, um, he surprised us. So I, I may have mentioned earlier that here in Yellowstone, even with wolves being protected, the average lifespan is only about five years. 
So I think he got to be probably at least eight years old, maybe eight and a half years old, that he began to change and he began to take on ability. Um, specifically, he began to travel away from the safety of the, the Druid Peak Pack. And there were five young males, yearlings in the Druid family. Some of them probably were his sons, some were, were nephews. So they were kind of used to looking up to 302 because of his age. So they left with 302 during the mating season. So it was a group of six adult males. And that meant that they could pretty much get away with going into territories of rival packs. That, that was a pretty strong force. And to condense a, a lot of details, let me just jump forward to saying that they met a bunch of sisters from the Agate Creek Pack. And um, since 302 was the oldest male, all of these younger wolves, males and females, looked up to him as the alpha male. And um, once again, to condense a bunch of story, uh, a bunch of details, um, as a couple of months went by and after 302 had, had bred several of those females, that group made a decision to form a brand new pack that became known as the Blacktail Pack. And one of the great ironies of 302's story is that he picked the territory to settle into for his new pack in exactly the same territory that he had grown up in, Blacktail Plateau. So at the end of a long life of irresponsibility and untrustworthiness, finally, um, he was a full-fledged alpha male that was taking his responsibilities very seriously. His responsibilities of going out and hunts to feed his family and his, his pups and defending the family. So it was a... a, a, a 180 degree turnaround. I never would have believed it if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes. But I, I need to get to the the climax of his story. So we, I could certainly see that as he was, um, let's see, I guess he had passed his ninth birthday. So that would be like a, a person um, 20, 30,000 years ago living to be in his 80s. That would be very, very unusual. Um, but that's what 302 had accomplished. And but with that age that he was at, um, he was he was having trouble keeping up with the younger wolves. He would lag behind. He was usually last in line. And you could see that um, things were really catching up with him, that he he was getting close to the end of his life. But he could continue to serve the pack by watching over the pups. In a way, he kind of took on the responsibility of running the, the daycare center, <laughs> which was uh, just another part of the story that you never would have got him, you know, taking care of the little toddlers. <laughs> and um, so the pack, um, because they weren't having any luck hunting in their own territory, they took the chance of going into the territory of a neighboring pack. And that's always a dangerous thing to do. I think earlier we had discussed how the most common cause of death for a wolf in Yellowstone 
is to be killed in a battle fighting with rival wolves mm-hmm. over territory. So I was very concerned with 302 and his new pack going into this other pack's territory. And as we, we get to the, 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 the main sequence of events, what happened on this one particular day is I had determined that all the other adult wolves had gone on a hunt in this other pack's territory. I got signals from 302 that indicated that he was once again taking care of the pups. And I could hear ravens calling out from the forest that those wolves were in, which clued me in that they probably had some kind of a carcass there. Now, if I could hear those ravens, the home pack, the the wolves that controlled that territory, certainly they could hear that too. So that caused me to be very, very concerned. It was the end of the day. It was getting dark. I, I couldn't see the wolves anyway, so I went home, got back there very early the next morning. I turned on my telemetry equipment to check on 302 signal. I got his signal, but it was in what we call the mortality mode. And what that means is if um, the, the callers are programmed that if a wolf does not move, I, I think it's for two hours then the electronic exchanges and the beats per minute double. That's what we call mortality mode. So I did not want to hear that, but that's what I was getting. So I called the wolf office. They sent out a bunch of people to help me, and we went out looking to see what had happened. Um, A woman named Erin was operating the telemetry equipment, so she was moving the antenna back and forth, telling us to go more to the right and then more to the left and then more forward. And we were all frantically um, trying to figure out what had happened. Um, Secretly, I'm sure every one of us was really hoping that it was a malfunction, which sometimes happened, and that, that he would really be okay. So it was a very emotional situation for us. And then um, there came a moment where suddenly Aaron just kind of called out uh, almost almost in the scream, and she had found him. So we all came over to Aaron, and he was lying there in the snow, and he was dead. And we could see that the cause of death was that he had been fighting with other wolves. And he had been killed by the other walls. So it was a very traumatic experience, especially for me to, to go through. But um, the good part of that story was that he had gone down a fighter, whereas uh, in every other time in his life, he had run away from a situation where he had to protect his family. Eventually, they did a full-fledged autopsy on him. And when I got the report, it showed that many of the bites had been to his face. And I'm emphasizing that because that was the proof that he had stood up to however many opponents he had, maybe five or six other adults stood up by himself against that many opponents to fight them. And Probably no wolf other than number 21 could have beaten those odds five uh, to one. Um, Certainly not 302 being such an old wolf and not being a very good fighter. But for once in his life, he had stood his ground to protect his family. 
What I didn't tell you was that when we found his body lying in the snow, there was something that was within a few inches of his body. It was a large number of wolf tracks, and they were all small-sized, meaning that after he had been mortally injured, uh, we think before he had died, the f- there were five pups in the family that he was responsible for guarding. They had escaped. The fact that he stood his ground and he fought with those other wolves gave them time to get away. And it looked like from what we could see from the evidence with the snow and the tracks and other things that he was still alive. When those pups came back, meaning that as he lay dying, he knew for sure that his sacrifice had worked, that he had saved the life of his pups. That's an incredible story. And you write in the book, too, that having known these pups for so long, most likely they were greeting him, wagging their tails and licking his face, and some would have likely licked his wounds. It's it's an incredibly moving, mo- moving story. Yes. Yes, yeah. Uh, and irony is, any wolf that ever lived, 302, who always ran away, for him in his dying minutes to stand his ground and successfully save the life of those pups was just the perfect ending to, to his life. Now, there's one more thing to say, one last reveal. And uh, this just you know puts more emotion into the story. So I think we had talked earlier about how his uncle, 21, just did not like 302 at all. And especially the way that 302 would get so many 21's daughters pregnant and then abandon them. And then 21 had to raise those pups. And there were so many times where 21 would chase 302 away from the daughters, catch 302, pin him to the ground, bite him, have 302 at his mercy. But 21 had this iron rule in life that he would never kill a defeated opponent. So time after time after time, he would step away and allow 302 to live. And 302 would just come back to the daughters once more. So after mentioning all those times that 21 spared the life of 302, even though it didn't make sense at the time, and to tie that to the events at the very end of 302's life, uh, I'll put it this way, that those pups that 302 sacrificed his life to save were 21's great-grandchildren. So think of the karma in that story. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. Trick for sharing that. It was such an incredible story to read in the book, but I think it's even better told by you verbally. It's it's such a such a wonderful and, and moving tale on so many levels. So thank you very, very much for, for taking the time to to tell it. Just one last thought. Yeah. That all of us, certain myself, um, we all certainly know that um, you know, we've had failures in our lives, we've let people down. Um, mm-hmm. we've made mistakes and all sorts of things that we regret. So what I like about 302's story is that it gives us hope that uh, 
no matter how many times we may have screwed up in our life, uh, there's hope that um, there still may be time for redemption for us, that maybe we can turn things around. It's a story that I know has been very affecting for a lot of people and touched a lot of people, but so have all of these stories. And you, especially in your, your early years at Yellowstone, played a really critical role in introducing people to the wolves and giving them opportunities to view them through your scope and educating mm-hmm. people of all ages and the millions of visitors to Yellowstone. What is it that you have found that people connect with the wolves over? Why is it that we're so drawn to these stories? Well, many people, including myself when I was younger, never felt that I would be fortunate enough in my lifetime to ever actually see one wild wolf uh, compared to coming to Yellowstone and, and day after day seeing a wolf family raise their pups. And so I was in the very, or am still in the very fortunate position of being able to go out every day. I see them almost every day, saw them today. And um, to help newcomers to Yellowstone to be able to see them. So what happens all the time, I will have found the wolves. I'll have my spotting scope set up. A family will pull over in their car. They'll walk over to me and just innocently ask, are you seeing anything? And I'll say, yes, we have a wolf pack. Would you like to look through my spawning scope? And one by one, every member of the family looks. And universally, the the response is exactly the same. It's just uh, amazement. Uh, kept uh, uh, People are just captivated by the wolves. They, they just can't get enough of them. I'll point out the father wolf, the mother wolf, pups, the teenagers, etc. Whatever the behavior is, uh, especially, let's say, the pups playing, the people who just are totally fascinated by it and they become addicted to it. They want to come back time after time. They buy their own expensive spotting scope. So um, it's a very addictive thing. But I think the thing that hooks people is that the lives of wolves is so similar in social dynamics to to humans. We both live in, in extended families. We both have to deal with complicated social arrangements in, in the sense that um, whether we're parents, we're older siblings, we're younger siblings, we have to deal with some people, some of which are relatives that are easy to get along with and who are very um, compatible with and others that we're not so compatible with. And we kind of have to figure things out. Wolves uh, hunt as a group, as a team, so they have to cooperate. And then uh, in their social behavior, to some degree, um, they are rivals uh, in the hierarchy. So at the same time, they're competitive with each other, but they have to be cooperative with each other. So very similar stuff to what humans have to put up with. And so there's just no end to how exciting it is to watch wolves live out their lives. Uh, Just one thing that's been a new development, even for us in, in recent weeks, the wolf pack that we studied the most closely here, the Junction Butte pack, they've had a grizzly bear traveling with them. So uh, that pack is our largest one. We'll see a line of maybe 25 or 27 wolves walking single file. And somewhere in that line of wolves is the grizzly bear. And what's in it for the grizzly is that grizzlies are not very efficient hunters. Most of their food is vegetation. They'd love to eat more meat, but it's not accessible to them. So this is a smart bear. It's getting near time for hibernation. And so the bear has figured out that it would 
pay off for the bear to travel with the wolf pack. And then when the wolves make a kill to run in and claim the bear's share. So the other day, the wolves chased a bunch of bison. There was a lot of confusion, a lot of bison, a lot of wolves running back and forth. The bear lost track of what was happening. We could see that one contingent of wolves had just successfully killed a cow elk. All the other wolves realized that. So they all ran over to that site. The grizzly bear was confused. It was looking around, I guess, saw some of the wolves running in a certain direction. It was smart enough to follow those wolves that led him or her right to the carcass. And so it charged in, elbowed the wolves aside to get its share (laughs) of food. So um, that was a new thing for us. And at times we watched the the little pups and then the pack just walk side by side or right after the bear, like, hey, this is normal for us. We're just pups, but we have this grizzly bear friend that we travel with. The Junction Butte pack that you mentioned is one of the most watched wolf packs in the world. The pack lives in Yellowstone Park near the park's border. Unfortunately, three members of this pack, two female pups and a yearling, were recently killed by hunters in Montana in September 2021, during the first week of the state's hunting season. This came after state officials in Montana recently removed long-standing limits on how many wolves can be killed via hunting and trapping in areas bordering the park, which has left Yellowstone's wolf population extremely vulnerable. These laws impact the wolves that live outside the park, and they impact the Yellowstone wolves whenever they spend time outside the park. Will you please tell us about the resurgence of anti-wolf laws in the West that's happened over the past year and the impact that these laws could have and are already having on the wolves that you know? Yes. uh, Yeah. Thank you for uh, this issue because it is a big one for us. There's a lot to say, but let me try to figure out how to condense a lot of information. So earlier we talked about um, that the wolves had been on the endangered species list. They were successfully reintroduced in the northern Rockies, and they did well enough that years ago they were taken off of the regional endangered species list. When that happens, um, management of wolves in that region switches from the federal agency, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, to the different local state wildlife agencies. And our region is, is, is basically three states, Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. About 90 to 95% of Yellowstone National Park is in Wyoming, but a little bit in Montana and Idaho as well. So for many years, things had worked out reasonably well with wolf management in Montana which is the state we deal with primarily, the Junction Buttes Territory uh, borders the section of the park next to Montana. The, the way that the hunting regulations are set up in Montana is the state legislature can establish some regulations, and then others are set up by what's called the Fish and Game Commission. There's five people that are appointed to that by the governors, they have terms of certain lengths. And to get into a lot of unnecessary uh, detail and information, I'll say that the new current governor, Gianforte, he was just elected last fall, appointed um, three of the five. And um, let's say that um, those appointees um, in the local communities are considered to be extreme 
and were considered to be likely to be blunt, to be anti-wolf. The other two commissioners were more reasonable, who in the past we, we felt were facing decisions on, on science. So the end result was a huge increase in the number of wolves that can be killed uh, in Montana this year. Uh, the most important detail to emphasize is that in the recent past, the two hunting zones along the northern border of Yellowstone including the one where the junction wolves are likely to occasionally go into. Both of those used to have quotas that were as high as 12 wolves. 12 wolves could be shot or trapped in each of those two zones. Um, The last few years, that quota was dropped down to just one wolf in each zone. So the local people that were testifying in favor of um, the wolf population. We're, we're very happy with that result. This year, the new members of the Game Commission voted to have unlimited wolf hunting and trapping in those same zones. So from a limit of just one wolf to no limits. And um, within a week or two of the opening of the season, the Junction Butte wolves did go past the Park border to them, they have no understanding of that. There's no sign or fence or anything that they would recognize. And a female yearling, and more tragically, two female pups that were about five months old were shot and killed. The survivors of the family came back to the park. We were able to account for them. I saw the family this morning, they were doing well. Um, but um, they were just a few miles from that northern border of the park. And any time, including tonight, uh, they could cross over that border and tomorrow some of them could be shot. So to give you a little bit more background on that, I keep track particularly of the Junction Butte pack. They den within sight of one of the park roads. So on a typical day this spring and early summer, an average of myself and perhaps 300 other park visitors would get to watch wolf parents raise their pups. When they left the den, they continued to be visible. And we saw that one family every day in Yellowstone for 184 days. So for any of your listeners, if they had come to Yellowstone during that time from Let's see, that was from March through, um, I guess, sometime in September. Um, They could have easily joined us and watched that wolf family. And that pack, which is by far the most visible wolf pack in the world, is generating a tremendous amount of revenue for the local economy. For wolves, as a total population in Yellowstone, we feel that they're bringing in about $65 million to the local economy. The Junction Wolf Pack is by far the most visible pack, so they represent the bulk of that money. And perhaps a, a more relevant figure, to bring it on a personal level, many of our my friends in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s are professional wildlife guides. They live in a rural part of Montana, and they make a daily salary, um, if I include the salary of tips, of an average of about $400 a day guiding people out to see the wolves, which would be primarily the Junction Butte wolves. 
So having them as such a visible pack is an extremely valuable asset to the local community. And when some of the members of that highly visible pack are shot and killed, it really affects revenue for local businesses. And not only the tour companies, but restaurants, motels, and things like that. So that's why the local people are are the, the most vocal proponents of having reasonable limits on wolf hunting and trapping and why we're continuing to try to reverse these draconian things that you've just mentioned and we've described. The story, uh, in many ways, for the humans, almost started out as a, as a bit of a redemptive one, but it was a less complete redemption than than 302 had. In that, you know, we're we're a little bit back to some of the same fights that we've had, uh, you know, 25, 30 years ago. I'm wondering though if the narrative around that has changed at all, particularly due to your work and the love people have come to have, not just for wolves generally, but for the specific packs and specific pack members. Um, are you noticing any difference in the fights and debates of today versus back in the mid-90s? Yes, there's way more people in America that are clearly on the side of wolves. So there's no question about that. And I, 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 I'm, I'm too modest to accept any credit for that. It's all due to the wolves. Uh, I just tell people what the wolves do. So uh, I'm, I'm just a storyteller. Uh, they're the main event, not me. But um, I really want to emphasize that economic uh, value of wolves that became a a very unexpected component and benefit of the wolf reintroduction. No one ever figured that that would be the case, that it would create so many jobs here and be such a, a boon to the local economy. So Yellowstone right now gets about 4 million visitors a year. It increases every year. The population of Montana is just 1 million. So I'll I'll let those two figures sink in for a moment. And just imagine the amount of revenue that those 4 million people bring into rural parts of the Northern Rockies. So having visible wolves here, I just want to emphasize how valuable and important that is Uh, to my friends that live in local community that are striving to support their family. So I I think the way to view this is let's try to figure out a balance here. Um, I'm not against the concept of some reasonable level of wolf hunting in Montana, but does it have to be this extremely high rate right at the edge of Yellowstone? where the very wolves that people are flocking to see are being killed off. Let's be rational about this. Let's work out an understanding where wolves can be certainly taken in other parts of Montana, but let's at least have limits here. We talked about uh, until recently, it was a limit of, of just one per the two zones here. We would be very happy if we can go back to that, maybe even a little bit higher. We'd be willing to negotiate on that. But um, let's try to figure out something that's workable here where the local people aren't going to suffer economically from these extreme anti-wolf regulations on hunting and trapping. Uh, Another issue that's a very positive thing regarding wolves is in the West, people are very worried about this disease called chronic wasting disease, which is for deer and elk. Wolves appear to be immune to it. 
and wolves being predators, they're experts at figuring out which are the most vulnerable animals for them to chase, attack, and kill and support their family on. So the wolves actually are specializing in removing the diseased elk and deer, the very ones that otherwise would be spreading the disease to other healthy animals. So um, just biologically, for the health of the ecosystem, uh, the wisest way to, to manage wolves in our area is to make use of uh, their high skills as predator to remove the threat of that chronic wasting disease from the population. That, that's just one example of the benefits of wolves. We've already talked about the economic benefits as well. And there are also, of course, the, the tremendous ecological benefits that so many people have have learned about through different media over the years after the Yellowstone wolves were introduced. I also want to mention with the laws, since we started on this note at the beginning of the podcast, that in many ways, these draconian laws that have gone, gone into effect this year parallel the grotesque hunting forms that were used in, in the 19th century. In uh, Montana now, for instance, you, know, you can use an unlimited number, as you mentioned, of steel-clawed leg traps that hold the wolves captive, or mother pups can be shot in their den, or the pups can be run over with snowmobiles, or strangled with neck snares, and blinded at night with light while they're shot, chased in ATVs, and so on and so forth. When you're dealing with the local community and interacting with people who support these measures, how do you go about that and, and go about communicating why this is so disturbing? And, and is it possible to change people's minds who are entrenched on mm -hmm. the other side? Well, I'm sure um, in the little towns near where I live, there, there certainly are anti-wolf people. But I think uh, being the West, I, I would say that you, you kind of have... Um, attitude out here of, of you want to try to be mutually respectful of each other. So yes, I, I know people that live near me that have legally shot wolves that left the park. And uh, my personal position, if it was done legally, then I do not have a problem with that. What I do have a problem with is the politician and these new the politicians and these new game commissioners that are making these very unscientific um, management decisions that that just are out of the the 1800s in in terms of how antiquated they are. So uh, I think the vast majority of citizens out here in the West um, ultimately would agree. Let's let the research biologists manage the population scientifically and to the best principles, leave the politicians and the extremists out of here. Um, that was what we had for the most part until this past year. Um, but you, you've already cited some of the, the very unsportsmanlike ways that uh, wolves are, are now legal to be killed. Uh, you can chase them and exhaust them with a pack of hounds. You can put out rotten meat to attract them to a spot and then turn on lights at night and just blast them away. Uh, yes, you can use traps. You can use snares. Uh, it's almost unlimited what you can do. I did some research and found that if you fully comply with all the regulations in Montana, um, you can shoot a total of um, 10 wolves for a uh, 
total amount of $138. That's not per wolf. That's for all 10 wolves total, meaning $13.80 per wolf. And at that price, you can pay that 10 times and kill 10 wolves. I mentioned that to someone and, and they were startled and said, well, that's only about equivalent to three Lotties uh, in, in the city. And in contrast, uh, we talked about the value to the local economy. Uh, with the junction wolves by far being the most visible wolves in, in all of Yellowstone, you could argue that every member of that pack to the local economy is worth theoretically millions of dollars because that's what those wolves are generating. So what is their worth? Is it a million dollars each for the tourist economy or is it um, $13.80 um, to people that want to brag about killing a wolf? So it's a shockingly distorted valuation of, of these wolves' lives, both from a practical economic sense, but also just in the broader inherent value that they themselves have. I'm, I'm wondering if you, over the years, you've been watching these wolves for about 30 years now, how has watching them, you know, so often and, and, and over so long changed you? You know, we've talked about how it's changed other people's hearts and minds and narratives around wolves. And I'm also curious whether you think that the wolves recognize you and, and know who you are. Well, I'll answer that second part. It, it might surprise you what I'm going to say. Um, I absolutely don't want the wolves to get used to me. Not at all. So when I'm typically um, observing the Junction View wolves, I'm probably an average of a mile away from them. I have a high-powered spotting scope, um, which I think goes up to maybe about 55, maybe 65 uh, magnification. So for the entire time I've watched wolves in Yellowstone, that's the normal way that I'm doing it. And the average distance is probably about a mile, sometimes further, sometimes a little bit closer. I would not want a wolf to get used to my presence. Just like, um, let's say, a concept in a a human situation, um, Parents, unfortunately, in, in this day and age, that they have to instruct their young children about the concept of stranger danger, um, which we don't really have to explain to your, to your listeners. So, yes, for a wolf to grow up in Yellowstone and think mistakenly that it's perfectly safe to walk near human beings because they're never going to us, well, as soon as that wolf steps over the border, and sees a person there pointing a rifle at them, uh, if they're naive enough to think, well, this isn't a problem either, that kind of looks like a camera lens, then they're going to be shot and killed. So the park rangers here make a big effort to have people stay at a distance from wolves so they don't get habituated to them. How has being around the wolves for so long and watching them for so long changed you? Well, I think the first thing that comes to think about that question is a very perceptive one, is admiration for them. Um, We talked about some of the more exciting and interesting and and the appealing uh, emotional aspects of their their social lives, their heroic actions, uh, their, their challenges, what they overcome and things like that. But on the other hand, they have really difficult, challenging, dangerous lives. 
uh, in many ways, probably uh, comparable to very early humans from maybe a couple hundred thousand years ago that um, lived in villages that were essentially subsistence hunters, perhaps a tribe in Africa, that when they went out to, to hunt, they had to deal with uh, fierce predators that uh, were out hunting them and trying to kill and eat them. So um, to, uh, probably uh, the best way for me to give you an idea of how challenging and dangerous the, the life of a wolf in Yellowstone would be, even with them being totally protected from humans inside the park. So just about their normal, natural lives, um, not counting any human interference. The most common cause of death for a wild wolf that lives its life in Yellowstone is to be killed by a rival pack of wolves um, in the process of fighting to defend its family. So just like humans, wolves fight over stuff and they kill each other over stuff. For wolves, that's essentially over territories. To survive as a wolf pack, you have to have a good quality territory, meaning good hunting. And other packs at times will want to take that away from you. And you have to be willing to fight to protect that territory and your family. If you have a wolf like 21 is your alpha male, then you're pretty much guaranteed to win that battle. If your alpha male was 302, well, not so much. So, um, but I want that to, to sink in. Uh, about half of all the wolf fatalities in Yellowstone of natural causes are wolves killing each other. And then um, it varies, but maybe another 50, 20% would be wolves dying on the hunt. So that would be a wolf trying to kill a bison or an elk, but in the process, it's actually the prey animal that kills the wolf instead. So if you put those two figures together, if you're a wolf growing up in Yellowstone, if, if you never leave the border, if you're always in the protected zone from the hunters and the trappers, you have roughly a 65% chance of a violent death where either you're going to be killed by rival wolves, prey animal. So um, very dangerous life for them. Uh, but when you watch wolves, um, even though they have to deal with that reality, um, one of the things that strikes you probably more than anything else is what happy and emotionally fulfilled lives they live. So even adult wolves love to play. Uh, they play games of chess, uh, excuse me, chasing, wrestling, uh, stealing things from each other, um, play just like adult dogs like to play. So they have an emotional life. They're very attached to their companions and their mates and their pups. Um, they have uh, very deep emotional connections to each other. So when I talk to people about wolves, even if they've never seen any in their life, it's very easy for them to connect with my stories about wolves because they relate so well to their experiences as human beings and to their experiences with all the dogs that they've had in their lives. 
the stories of play in the book are so delightful. At one point, you list all of the different games that the wolves have come up with. And it's just incredible. And they're like all the same games you'd see on a child's playground too: tag and king of the castle and, you know, ambush and all of these other all these other games. As you describe it, the wolves are just exuberant, clearly having fun and and enjoying themselves. As one final question, you mentioned that you you don't get to know you don't want the wolves to know you personally and and you're observing them at a distance, but of course, you know, you're serving quietly whether they know it as or not as their champion from afar, telling these stories of the wolves in Yellowstone in, in such a way that allows people not just to understand them but inspires them to love and care for them. And for all of us that have loved your three books in this series so far about Yellowstone's Pantheon. Uh, will you tell us about your fourth book um, and give us a brief preview for people who are, are looking forward to learning more about yet another one of the great wolves of the park? Yes, thank you. Um, if you are for um, those of you that have read the redemption of Wolf 302, I introduce what will become the main character in the fourth book, and um, it's known as the 06 female. She was briefly uh, a f- girlfriend of 302 in his latter years. And uh, she uh, was uh, a superpower unto herself. She um, was a very unique female. She lived uh, in her younger and middle years of a totally free and independent life. Uh, She was the equivalent of a a Disney princess in Yellowstone in the sense that all the male wolves lined up to court her and she just rejected them left and right until she was middle. And then we thought that she would never settle down, that she would never find a male that was good enough for her to pair off with. And when she was maybe the equivalent to an adult woman, perhaps in her 40s, something happened in her life where she met two brothers and totally against her previous behavior, immediately decided, hey, these are the guys for me. And they were yearlings, meaning that in human years, they were probably about the same as two brothers that were sophomores in high school hearing off with a, a middle-aged wife. So it was a very, very uh, seemingly incompatible situation. But uh, the point of her story in her book is that uh, those young males turned out to be exactly the right choice for her. She really knew what she was doing to pick them. Because years later, at the moment of the biggest crisis in her life, when she and her newborn pups were threatened by an ultra-violent pack, um, they say. So uh, her life story is a very, very exciting one. And uh, she's the best example we've really had of what an ideal alpha female is like. She just was a, a sterling example. And, um, boy, she was her her own wolf. Uh, She made her own decisions, did her own thing, and bossed all the the males around. And they were happy to do what they were told by her. So she was uh, quite the female. And uh, I'm very happy. I I don't think we've publicly announced this, but um, Jane Goodall has already written the introduction to that book. 
And boy, her essay is just spectacularly good. She talks about um, uh, comparing my stories of alpha female wolves to the females that she studied in her research of her chimp packs in, um, in, in Africa. So it's just a stunning essay that she was very happy with uh, what she did for us in that essay. So nothing has been signed yet, but we've gotten a lot of interest from Hollywood on buying the rights to the wolf stories here. So it may be a few years down the line, either in the theaters or on Next or um, Amazon Prime or whatever. You may see uh, some of these stories on the big screen or the little screen. That would be incredible. Very much would 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 look forward to seeing that. I mean, they they really are cinematic stories that very much deserve their own place on the the silver screen. Well, thank you. And I think if we yeah, I think if we can accomplish that, that will really help to turn the tide in favor of, of acceptance of walls throughout. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. Well, Rick, thank you so much. I, I wanted to ha- include a shout out to Matthew McConaughey in case he was listening, that he should definitely accept the part to play you. But I thought it might be a little presumptuous to assume that Matthew McConaughey would be listening. And, and we'll have all our, all our fingers crossed that it goes well. Yeah. <laughs> when he came to the park, he wanted to meet me and he asked if he could take a selfie with me. So we have that going. So we know <laughs> each other. Rick McIntyre, thank you so very much for joining us. Okay. It's been a lot of fun uh, doing this with you. Thanks thanks so much. Thank you to Ryan McAvoy, the Yale Broadcast Studio, and Daniel Block for their work on this episode. When We Talk About Animals is supported by the Law, Ethics, and Animals program at Yale Law School. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, write us a review, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org where you can find out more about Rick McIntyre and his latest book, The Redemption of Wolf 302. Thanks for listening.